This is a recording from the Engaging the Mind lecture series at the University of Virginia. People want charisma in their leaders, but they also want competence and results. This means leaders must solve problems, achieve goals, and create positive change. On April 17, 2008, Thomas S. Bateman, Bank of America professor and management area coordinator in the McIntyre School of Commerce at the University of Virginia, discussed leadership with a crowd at Danville's Institute for Advanced Learning and Research. We're, we're very pleased to have Professor Bateman here uh, tonight to speak on the topic of lessons in leadership from competence to charisma. Mr. Bateman is the uh, Bank of America eminent scholar at the McIntyre School. Uh, he also is the coordinator for the management education area within the McIntyre School. Mr. Bateman received his undergraduate degree from Miami Un University in Ohio and then received his MBA and his Doctor of Business Administration uh, in Organizational Behavior from Indiana University. Uh, he specializes in organizational behavior he conducts research in leadership, motivation, decision-making, personality, stress, and managerial goals. He has been at the University of Virginia for eight years. He came from that small school down in Chapel Hill, which has been, uh, as well, uh, producing children who are Virginia graduates. He has uh, one child who has received her master's from the University of Virginia and a son who will be receiving his degree in just a few weeks. Uh, thank you, Charlie, very much, Althea. And thank you, everybody. I really appreciate your coming out tonight. Uh, I've already had a good time, despite Charlie's shots at me, uh, for being at Chapel Hill. For, I was at Chapel Hill for a long time and loved it, loved it. Uh, thought I would be there forever, uh, and then the UVA opportunity came up, and I love it all the more. I've been there for eight years, and uh, couldn't be happier about, about being there. Uh, my daughter, as Charlie said, just uh, graduated last year, the Masters of Public Health. My son, I give him 50-50, uh, <laughs> graduating in about three weeks uh, in the, out of the Curry School of Education and History and uh, Religious Studies. I, I feel compelled to say I'm a little sheepish about the title eminent scholar. Most universities just call them chaired professors. This one at UVA sounds a little bit more highfalutin than I am, I think. Uh, I, I, when I first moved to UVA, and it was in my signature line in, in emails, a buddy of mine at, down at UNC, arch rival UNC, saw the title and wrote to me an email that simply said a quote from Thoreau or Emerson or one of those guys, and the quote was, his eminence is due to the flatness of the terrain. <laughs> uh, uh, excellent, excellent line, I thought. Uh, anyway, I've had a good time already, enjoyed meeting people out front. I love, I've never been in the facility, I've seen it driving by, it looks cool from the highway. It's all the more impressive from the inside. I've been learning about the research uh, uh, theme, the four research themes and the conferences and so forth. Met a few of you, and I appreciate it. I know there's some, uh, some soon-to-be UVA students in the crowd, too. So, so I thank you all for coming. I, I have been looking forward to this. I think it's a fun topic to talk about, an important topic, leadership. Uh, I ha have some prepared remarks. I have handouts with slides uh, in case you might be interested. Don't, don't feel obligated, but anybody who wants slides uh, can get them in hard copy uh, later. Uh, so I'm going to talk, and uh, feel free to ask questions at any point, and definitely we will have 
question and answer and discussion, I, I hope, uh, after my, my uh, prepared comments are, are over. So let's get started. Uh, here, here's what I want to talk about, leadership. Let me start by saying uh, that in the year 2000, Fortune Magazine, prominent business magazine, year 2000, Fortune named someone to be its manager of the year, or what might be called business leader of the year. And I'm thinking you might either know who it is or can take a guess who it is. I just said manager of the year, didn't I? I meant manager of the century. Manager of the century. Jack Welch of GE. And my opening point about him is that Fortune did not name him manager of the century by virtue of his charisma or by virtue of his personality. They named him manager of the century by virtue of the results that he delivered. Year after year after year over the decades, uh, delivered great, obviously, value, shareholder wealth, et cetera, delivered business results. I'm here primarily to talk about competence as a key to leadership. And I'll throw in some stuff about charisma. But I draw the contrast in part because uh, very, very often when people want to learn something about leadership, when they think about charisma, uh, about leadership, uh, a key word that comes up early in the conversation is charisma. Uh, so-and-so is a charismatic leader. I wish I was born from, with that kind of charisma. He's got that magic touch. She seems somehow charismatic that everybody pays attention when she speaks. How, how can I get more charisma? Uh, one of my main messages tonight is charisma is not something mystical and magical that a few lucky people are born with. Uh, it's a function of how you think and how you behave. And those things are totally under your control or under the control of any leader. I will also say that charisma very much derives from being competent. The more competent one is, the more successful one is, the more people sort of start paying attention and seem to sort of infer that he or she must be a charismatic leader. I don't know if there are many sports fans in the audience, but I think of Eli Manning, who just won a Super Bowl for the New York Giants. Nobody ever called him charismatic until they won the Super Bowl. And now there must be some kind of quiet charisma about this guy. I'm here to talk about both. What a great combination it would be to be both competent and charismatic. And we'll talk a little bit about both, but uh, my bigger point is that competence drives charisma more than the other way around. Uh, and both of these things are under the control of, of any leader. Both these things are a function of how you think and how you go about doing things. So those are all utterly controllable. They're not mystical, magical things that the lucky few are born with. Real quickly, to make the point about uh, charisma a little bit more and competence, Jack Welch, he's charismatic now for sure, maybe partly because he's so successful. But his competence was the driver of that award. Think about a few, let's broaden the context, and I hope we have discussion about maybe the private sector, but other things uh, as well, so I think of other examples. About a lot of you have uh, watched uh, the movie Apollo 13, came out of the 1990s. Imagine for just a moment that you are one of the astronauts that was stuck out in space in the capsule. And imagine you're one of the two who are subordinate to Jim Lovell, who was played by uh, Tom Hanks. What would matter more to you, Jim Lovell, Tom Hanks being charismatic or Jim Lovell being competent and capable of getting us back home. How about thinking down to earth, Houston? Who's running the show down to Houston? Remember the Ed, uh, um, what's his name, the actor? 
Hi, Ed Harris. Thank you. Playing, uh, uh, playing the guy in charge down in Houston. Would you, if you're up in that capsule, would you rather Ed Harris be charismatic and personable, or would you rather he be good and competent and, and capable of bringing you back alive? Uh, Mike Krzyzewski at Duke. He hasn't been so great and so successful and made so much money by virtue of having a great sense of humor or being personable. He's good. He's great at what he does as a leader. Competence is my point. Uh, I teach a, cor uh, a course in leadership. We've got a new minor, by the way, in leadership. Just uh, okayed a few weeks ago at UVA. Cross-disciplinary, multidisciplinary minor, open to all undergrads through an application process. Uh, I teach a case about the race to the South Pole in 1911 between Amundsen, the Norwegian, and Captain Scott, the Brit, the race to be the first to reach the South Pole. Uh, it's a fascinating case, a very rich story. One thing about the case is these two guys, Norweg the Norwegian Amundsen, the, the Brit uh, Scott, two very different approaches to leadership as they lead their teams trying to win the competition. But imagine yourself in this scenario. I mean, this is, this is a true story. Um, Amundsen, the Norwegian, was planning a trip to the North Pole. His boyhood, his ambition since boyhood was to be the first to reach the North Pole. And then early in, well, shortly before he's about to set sail, word comes that an American named Cook uh, claims the North Pole. Amundsen's decades-long, since boyhood, ambition to be the first to claim the North Pole has been shattered, all right? Amundsen plans, though, to still continue his mission to the North Pole because he's raised money, the government has supported him, investors have supported him, he's hired his crew, he's got his ship, everything's all ready to go. And he's a good sportsman, too, by the way. So he's going to continue and do his research up in the north and so forth, but the polar glory has disappeared. Well, imagine for a minute that you are on Amundsen's crew, and you were going to be part of a crew to, to be first to reach the North Pole. As a little aside, uh, so you're soon to embark. As a little aside, a little factoid or quirk, think for a minute, this is a rhetorical question, but think for a minute about what route you think you might take if you're going to leave Norway to go to the North Pole. Sound, it's, it is rhetorical. Sounds like you ought to go north, right? This is the truth. You know this. Yeah, a couple of people know this. You do go south. And this is the truth. You go south through the Atlantic, through the South Atlantic, down around the tip of South America, up through the Pacific, the Bering Strait, past the Aleutian Islands, and then into the uh, polar, polar cap. This is the truth. There's a reason for it. The reason is, remember, remember from geography, the continents? Antarctica in the south is a continent. It's a land mass with snow and ice on it. The Arctic up to the north is not a continent. It is not land. It is simply a polar ice cap, constantly spinning. And the way to get to the North Pole was to enter, for your ship to enter the ice at the right time of year in the right spot. And the spinning polar ice, once you could no longer sail through open waters, they would embed their ship in the ice, the ice would close around them, the polar cap would keep spinning, and your ship would spin closer and closer and closer into the North Pole. 
and that's the truth. That's how they would get there. And you had to enter the ice, like I said, at the right place at the right time, and that necessitated that circuitous route. Well, here's my point. Here's what I'm getting at. Uh, if that's not too much of an aside right there. I think it's interesting in its own right, but uh, imagine you're a crewman for Amundsen, and you're going to be on the North Pole. Uh, you're going to go to the North Pole. You set sail from Norway. You start heading south. You get to your final piece of civilization as you depart Europe. And Amundsen calls the entire crew on board and says, guys, guess what? We are going to have, and he calls this a minor diversion. We're going to detour a bit and capture the South Pole, which had never been visited before, on our way to the North Pole. The minor diversion will keep you away from home for an entire year, one extra year compared to what's planned. And by the way, the South Pole, Antarctica to the south, far colder than the North Pole. In our hemisphere, we think of the North Pole as being so cold. It's much colder in the south. There are 15,000-foot mountains. You know this? 15,000-foot mountains in Antarctica. Totally uncharted territory. It's not like going to a national park and you get a map with a dotted line that shows you how to get there. Take an extra year. What do you think, guys? Will you do it? Will you go on this minor diversion with me? And the guys are all looking at each other like, what the heck? And then Amundsen goes on to say all the planning he's done. We got the best Iceman. We got the best uh, you know, uh, uh, navigational equipment. We got the best cross-country skiers. We've got the best dogs who, who, will, who will carry the sleds as far as that can be found. We've got, the, we've got great skiers. We've got a great cook. We've got et cetera. It turns out he's planned everything. The question becomes, he says, you've got an hour to make up your mind and an hour to write your letters home. What do you think? Are you coming? Minor diversion, one more year away from home. Well, there's a pregnant, long pregnant pause, and then one guy says, Nansen is coming. And the next guy says, Johansson is coming. And they start stepping up one by one. This is a masterpiece theater type movie, by the way, so I show clips of it to the class. Unanimously, every guy says, heck yes, I'm, I'm coming. I'm following you, Amundsen. Back to the original point, and maybe I'm going on too long, but it's a big, big point to me. They didn't go along because he's charismatic or was fun and funny. They went along because they knew they were in good hands with this guy. This guy knew what he was doing, had it all figured out, and by golly, if anybody's going to get us there to the South Pole and get us out alive, it is this guy, Amundsen. Unanimously, they jumped on board, and partly through his leadership style then, plus his competence, it was Amundsen's team who beat, beat the Brits to the South Pole. If I can add one more final personal example, and then we'll get into the meat of what I want to say. Two years ago, I met a guy. I was out on a rafting trip with my sons, uh, Middle Fork of the Salmon in Idaho, and I met a guy who, turns out, is a world-class expedition leader. He's a river guy, and he's a mountain guy. Uh, and he, I, for whatever reason, I think he could spot my machismo. He, uh, just kidding. Uh, he said, uh, he said, hey, do you want to come on my next expedition with me? And I am not, this may surprise you, I am not a hardcore outdoor expedition guy. But this guy, I think he knew he'd finally met his match as far as alpha maleness is concerned, so he asked me to come along. 
And uh, here's the deal on His name is Pasquale Scaturo. Here's the deal on him. He's done at least two famous things in, in, expedition, in the expedition world. One is he took a blind mountain climber to the summit of Mount Everest. You may have heard about this. There's an A&E movie about this. This guy who met Pasquale was the leader of the expedition, and a blind climber summited Mount Everest under Pasquale. The other thing Pasquale did recently is uh, he did the complete descent of the Nile River from source to sea, 3,500 miles, three or four months, never been done. This was the grand prize of exploration in the 19th century. The Brits, Burton and Speak and all those guys, movies about it, and they always either died or gave up. Pasquale did it, and there's an IMAX movie about, called The Mystery of the Nile about it. Anyway, he invites me on his next expedition. It's a river trip in Ethiopia, wild river, utterly remote, crocodile infested, one of the worst malaria places in the world. Hippos, hippos, you might know if you watch uh, Animal Planet, you know hippos are the most dangerous animal there is. Remote tribes, Pasquale's telling us uh, anybody gets hurt and there's no way to evacuate. Anybody dies and we take the body with us for the rest of the trip because we're so inaccessible. I've never done anything remotely like that, but I said, yes, I'm going. It wasn't because of his charisma, although he is that. It's because if I'm ever going to do something really cool, this is the opportunity, and this is the guy I want to do it with. If anybody's going to get me out there alive, it's Pasquale Scatoro. If you get Outside Magazine, the, this, the current issue, April, uh, has a feature article about Pasquale Scatoro. It's, it's called The Decider is the name of the article. It's about his very decisive style of leadership. Anyway, broad point, people want to know what's the personality that will help me? How do I get more charisma? I'm, I'm saying it's not so much about charisma, it's about competence, and the charisma can follow. If you can combine both those two things, you're doing okay. The processes that, it, that are involved are those two things right there. It's not being born with charisma, it's not being born with competence, it's how you think and what you do and both of those things are utterly under your control. Okay, so we'll move on uh, from there. Um, I'm going to organize this in, in the two themes of thinking and doing. I just want to say quickly, think about this for a minute. It's incredible how much of our lives we go through mindlessly rather than mindfully. So much of what we do is pretty unthinking, pretty habitual, pretty routine. So I'm saying the first step about being a better leader is to be more thoughtful and mindful about, well, in your decision-making, in your problem-solving. Uh, quick quotes that up in the upper right, that's a Model T. Henry Ford said, thinking is the hardest work there is. That's probably why so few people do it. George Bernard Shaw said, most people would sooner die than think. In fact, they do. And William James, uh, the greatest psychologist ever, who most people have never heard of, said that most people think they are thinking when they are merely rearranging their prejudices. In other words, nothing changes really. Uh, and they're, so they're not really thinking. In the lower right, that's a bunch of cigars right there. I bet some of you have heard this, especially if you're country western fans. Have you heard the story about the lawyer who bought some real expensive cigars and insured them? And then, yeah, you smoke them all, 
and then filed with the insurance company, uh, said they were destroyed. Uh, uh, um, yeah. Wait a minute. Now I got it mixed up. He ended up, well, and, and yeah, they uh, said they were destroyed by fire, is what he said to the insurance company. The insurance company figured it out and turned the tables on him and said, uh, and, and charged him with arson. Uh, anyway, I've heard that Brad Paisley wrote a song about it or something. I've since learned that this is apocryphal, or been told it's apocryphal, but I, I bought it hook, line, and sinker. I thought that was a great story, and it's more detailed, and it's kind of a shaggy dog story if you want to take the time. But it's one of those things that came by email, and I believed it. It just struck me as a great example of a story you, you, about getting so much information from all directions, from unknown sources, reliable sources, sometimes unreliable sources. What do you believe? What do you not? You've got to be able to think these days more than ever before. By the way, it was my mom who sent me the email. Uh, I believed her. She believed it. I will no longer trust her. Uh, but, but the point is, you know, what do you believe anymore? You've got to be a better thinker, and you've got to surround yourselves with good thinkers. So there's too much mindlessness. There's too much bad thinking in the world by leaders. We need more good thinking. And ideally, uh, uh, leaders engage their teams in thinking together. Okay? So I'm not, I'm not going to talk about all these things, but I just put that up there for a moment as examples of the various types of bad thinking that every human being falls prey to. And I'm not going to talk about any of uh, all of them except I'll just highlight one. That one there says we have two choices. How often do you find yourself thinking I've got no choice but X? Or we've got two choices. We've got to do that or that. Uh, my broad point here is when you find yourself succumbing to any of those things, Use that as a trigger to step back and say, you know what, I bet we're limiting ourselves somehow. I bet we're restricting our thinking. There must be a third option or a fourth option. With the group, help me think this through. What are our other possibilities here? Uh, so often we just mindlessly fall into some of these traps. A Mark Twain quote, by the way, that I love, Mark, one of Mark Twain's lines was, I've suffered a great many catastrophes in my life. Most of them never happened. Point being all up here, and it's just messed up my thinking and made me made, made bad decisions and hold me back from taking risks that maybe I should take. All right? And then a little bit more about the biases that human beings fall prey to. Again, not to um, talk about them all, but just glance over them, and I think you'll agree we all fall prey to some of those, some of the time, all of those, once in a while. Okay? Moving on. Here is the heart of what I want to say. Good thinking. That happens not nearly enough. What I put up there are essentially the steps of effective problem solving. And I'm here to say that, the, that good leadership is all about how you solve problems, how you apply your own mind, and how you invite the minds of other people to help you think through the challenges that you face. Leadership is very much about how you solve problems, how you tackle your challenges, how you pursue your opportunities, and ideally, how you think together and get every brain with relevance to engage in helping you think things through. 
You can apply that to just about any problem you face, whether you're a leader or not. It applies to personal challenges, personal issues. I urge you to consciously force your way. Just systematically march through that thing, and you'll end up solving more problems and making better decisions than you would if you went about it sort of the way most people normally go about it. Real quick, one of the best examples of doing this well I teach a case, recent Harvard Business School case, but it's not about the private sector. It's called Launching the War on Terrorism. And the case begins when President Bush is, remember he's reading to the children when he learns about the attacks, 9-11 attacks? Reading to the little kids, right? And uh, Chief of Staff Andrew Card whispers in his ear that America is under attack. This case begins at that point and then describes the next several days as President Bush mobilizes his war cabinet to decide what to do. And I'm, I'm here to tell you it's a, a, a superb example of doing all of those things and doing them pretty effectively. He brings together his brain trust. They spend a lot of time talking about defining the scope of this problem, the nature of this problem we're going to face. They generated a lot of options. What should we do? And they're just brainstorming and laying out all kinds of options for what to do. This is on 9-11 and 9-12 in the next several days. For all their options, they're, broad, they're, they're, they're brainstorming as a team. What will happen if we do X? What will happen if we do Y, et cetera? They start to talk about, well, they start talking about Iraq at that point, as you, as you might know. They, they, they're pretty quickly, though, focusing on Afghanistan because they know it's Al-Qaeda and they know that's who they want to go after. And they talk about the various things they got to do. Military, talking Afghanistan now, military is part of it, but also diplomacy and tracking the terrorism, uh, terrorist uh, finances, tracking the money. Humanitarian, anyway, military, humanitarian, finance, diplomatic, mobilizing a coalition, you know, etc. They end up choosing what they want to do. Of course, they're going to do all those things regarding Afghanistan. Militarily, they talked about, do we send unmanned bombers? Do we send manned bombers? Do we send boots on the ground? What are the consequences of all those options? They end up doing, doing all three. And then they, then they decided, President Bush, as you know, very decisive individual. He, he listened to everything. They covered an incredible breadth of, of, of options. He's very decisive. He decided what, we, what to do, and then they turn our attention to delegating tasks and timetables, et cetera, planning the implementation. And of course, it was a very effective strike into Afghanistan. Most of the world thought all that was well handled. Now, as a contrary example, and I'll be quick, and maybe you can talk about later. We can talk about any of this later if you want to. But fast forward a little bit to Iraq, and Regardless of a person's position on the political spectrum, uh, most people say that Iraq has not been very well managed or well led, especially by the civilian leadership. And if we were to brainstorm what has gone wrong with regard to Iraq, everything we say, I bet you, would slot into one of those things. Confusion about the goal, shifting goals. Not, uh, going, uh, not, not fully considering multilateral approaches, being unilateral and not so much multilateral, uh, being more military than diplomatic, et cetera, uh, apparently forecasting only positive consequences and not considering the negative consequences. Uh, the implementation, of course, was 
was poor. And that's, I think, I hope you understand that's not a criticism of the, of the, of the military by any means, but, but it's well known the civilian leadership didn't much care about implementation once we were in Baghdad, the, the occupation and the, and the reconstruction and so forth. Anything you want to brainstorm about Iraq, it slots in there. The broad point here, competent leadership is about competent problem solving and competent decision making, and this is the core of doing that well. By the way, I, don't, I hope I don't sound like I'm making it sound easy or minimizing the, uh, you know, the complexity and the challenges, but that core right there goes a long way toward uh, effectiveness. Okay, all right, moving on. That's my broad point with suggestion for competence. We speak for a minute about charisma, which is not a trait, it's not a mystical, magical thing, but I'm saying here, it's a function of how you behave, and anybody can become more charismatic by virtue of behaving in these kinds of ways. So I start and end with a statement about competence. The more competence you exhibit, the more successes you have, the more people will see charisma in you, even if you're still the same personality as you were before. But think about the other things for a minute. Vision, you've heard this word with leadership. Charismatic leaders know what they want to accomplish. They have a vision and they can communicate it well. Who's gonna follow a leader who doesn't know where he or she is heading or can't paint the picture of the you know, shining city on the hill that we're striving for or the great company that, that we wanna build? Uh, I think of a quick little metaphor that I think is pretty cool. I don't know if any of you do uh, jigsaw puzzles. You know, the, you know jigsaw puzzles, 500 little funny pieces or 1,000 funny pieces. You ever try doing a jigsaw puzzle without having the photograph on the box cover to guide you? Uh, some are shaking their heads no. If you have, you might have tried that for fun. It doesn't go very well, typically. What if you were a leader trying to invite people to participate in your puzzle you know, construction? but you have no idea or can't or explain to them or show them what the finished product is gonna look like. It's gonna be darn hard to interest them, motivate them, get them to persist in, in tackling this, you know, you know what I'm saying, okay? Briefly check out some of the others, showing passion, showing you're willing to work as hard, if not harder than anybody else, being able to, 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 to self-sacrifice a little bit. Not only showing self-confidence, but expressing not disappointment in other people, but confidence in other people. Amundsen was great at that, by the way, going to the South Pole. Captain Scott, the Brit, was not great at, he had confidence in himself, but not, no confidence in his followers. And, and there's a tragic ending to, to his story, by the way. MBWA is an old term, the acronym there. Some of you know it, I can tell. Management by walking around. It means being out and about and in the action Individualized cons uh, uh, attention means attention to individuals as individuals, knowing names, eye contact, etc. The personal touch as opposed to the aloof uh, approach. I'm not going to belabor any more except to tell you what the Wallenda factor means. Anybody recognize the name Wallenda? Yeah? Bingo, yes, tightrope walkers. Charlie says the flying Wallendas. Uh, the, the, a circus family 
Carl Wallenda was the patriarch. He was the original bar on the tightrope guy, and he taught his kids and, then, and grandchildren. Soon the whole family is doing trapeze and tightrope walking. One of the great le uh, writers about leadership, some of you may know the name, Warren Bennis uh, at Southern Cal, did a study of great leaders in every aspect of life to try to figure out what they had in common. And he one of the things he landed on, he called the Wallenda factor, named after Carl Wallenda. And the point is that Wallenda was th this great artist uh, for decades and decades and decades. Uh, and then Carl Wallenda fell to his death from the tightrope. I wonder if you remember this. It was uh, in downtown San Juan, Puerto Rico. They'd strung the cable between two high-rise office buildings or hotels or something in, in downtown. And he fell to his death. He, he, by the way, I believe was 73 years old. He was walking up to that point. And then this one in San Juan, he fell to his death. They asked, uh, the press asked his widow after, afterwards about it. And she said, uh, you know, uh, I'm not surprised that, uh, that this is the one. We knew he was going to keep doing it for as long as he physically could. But I, and I'm not surprised this is the one uh, where, he died, where, where he fell to his death. And the, the reporters asked why. And she said, well, this is a, he's always been supremely self-confident, also realistic, understanding the challenges, but also confident. But this time, he didn't sleep very well. He was more worried than normal. He woke up a couple times. He was thinking about the wind patterns and so forth more than normal. He was checking up on his crew more than he normally does. He, he knows they're good, but, and he trusts them, but this time he didn't seem to trust them. He just didn't have the same attitude this time. Uh, 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 Warren Bennis refers to the Wallenda factor, that the great leaders, the ones who succeed, are focused, like a laser beam, on success one way or another, they know they're going to make it to the other side alive. And that's not naive optimism, though. They're realistic. They know the facts. They know the challenges. But they know that I'm good enough, and with this talented team, we're good enough. One way or another, we're going to make it to the other side and succeed. She said this time he did not think like that. He was thinking failure instead of success. By the way, back to the South Pole, Amundsen knew they would succeed. Um, Scott, the Brit, who died, who made it to the South Pole second and then died on his way out, he seemed to be thinking failure. He seemed to think there's a good chance I'm going to die, but at least I'll die a hero and a martyr. He was thinking failure, whereas Amundsen was thinking success. Just a single case, but pretty interesting, I think. Anyway, those are some of the factors about charisma that anybody can think about and demonstrate, work on, improve, and so forth. Okay. Do you see the slide? Let me say, say this first. You see the slide? Does everybody have the hard copy? You see a, a slide with donuts on it? Yeah? I want to cover two more slides, and that's one of them. This is almost a practical tip, I think, that's useful. It's a metaphor that, in a way, combines thinking and doing. And it's something I hope some of you will walk away with and apply, both to your own thinking about yourself, and also maybe with regard to your people. Uh, if you're in a managerial position with direct reports, the idea is uh, a metaphor uh, for a person's job, for your job or for your direct reports jobs. And the metaphor is a donut, but as it says there, an inverse donut, if you can imagine, which is to say that the very center 
instead of being air, I mean, you know, don't know what the hole in it, but reverse it. Instead of being air, the center is cake. And then the cake is surrounded by air, and then surrounding the air is a solid surround, okay? Point is, inverse donut is a metaphor for a job, a person's job, yours or your people's jobs. The center, the cake, that is the core of the job. And that's the stuff you gotta be great at. And that's the stuff your people have to be great at. And you've heard the 80-20 rule, I bet, in various domains. Point about 80-20 rule here is that 80% of your value or your people's value comes from 20% of, of their tasks, which is to say there's a minority of things that you gotta be brilliant at and world-class at and you expect greatness from your people. There's a lot of other stuff, but it's just not so important. The idea is identify the core 20% that you wanna be world-class at and be able to articulate it. That's the stuff you gotta do and do greatly. The surround, the far surround, the solid surround, that's the stuff do not do. Yourself or your people. That's the illegal, the unethical, the countercultural, the stuff that violates our strategy, the things that just you should never stray into that territory. The, then, then the air around the cake, that's the room for discretion, for independence, for autonomy, some creative freedom there. So you can take initiatives, you can try new things, you can experiment, you innovate here. So t the suggestions are, for one thing, can you articulate your own donut in those terms? Can you articulate the core 20% you've got to be great at? Can you articulate the definite no-nos? And, and, and then what's left over for creative freedom? Can your people articulate their donuts in a way that makes you happy? If you were to describe one of your direct reports donuts and he or she was to describe his or her donut, would you be on the same page? Would you be saying the same thing? I think it's a great metaphor for leaders and their people to communicate about what matters, what's good, what's bad, the amount of freedom and so forth. By the way, a wide airspace is often better than a narrow airspace as long as you got controls in place so things aren't out of control, right? But I like the metaphor, so I hope some of you uh, might, might use it or think about it you know, down the road. Finally, uh, this final slide here is called From Thinking to Doing. I want to make final points about, well, talks like this, or taking a class, or having a conversation or discussion at the office, or having a great idea in the shower, uh, as we do once in a while. And talking, what I'm getting at here is the, the key link between having a good idea, like, I think I'll apply that donut metaphor. Or I realize I haven't articulated my vision very well. I'm gonna do that with my people when I get back or, or something like that. You come out of a class or a talk, I hope, or the, your good idea in the shower. We all have ideas. What's the link between just having something you wanna try and actually taking the step to actually do it? It's a, it's a big chasm. Oftentimes, think of how many good ideas you've had but have never acted on. It's often a big chasm. Here's what I'm getting at. First off, <laughs> you probably can't quite tell what that thing is on top. That's a fish, anybody recognize it? It's a northern pike. 
If you fish, you might know what that is. It's a big fish. It's got teeth. It's carnivorous. It eats other fish. Some biologists did a quick and easy little study. They put a northern pike in an aquarium, and they made it real hungry. They didn't feed it for a while. They then lowered a glass partition into the middle of the tank, so the pike is obviously on one side of it, hungry. They then put a lot of little minnows in the other side of it, so the food is on the other side. The pike, you can imagine, sees the minnows, goes for it, runs into the glass, hits the snout, backs off, a little surprised, goes after it again, hits its snout, tries a couple more times, but keeps getting blocked. Can you, think, can you imagine where this is going? Pretty soon it settles down. You got it, right? They then pull out the thing, and uh, the fish, the minnows are now swimming around the pike, and the pike is, is paying no attention to them. It's still hungry. Its goals are totally within sight, but it isn't trying and remains hungry. There's a good point of, applicable to us human beings here. We get it in our heads that something can't be done or that something's impossible, when in fact it's one of those bad thinking you know, biases that so many of us have. The study of middle managers, big, big corporation, cycling lots of middle managers through training programs. The facilitator, with every group coming through, asks them to think of an idea that they think is a great idea that ought to be implemented in the company. Something you've thought of in the shower, maybe thought of over the years or months, but some great idea that you believe in but you've never acted on. You believe in it but you haven't tried it. Then the question was, so write down an idea or two. Then the question was, now write down the reasons you have not done this thing you, try, you believe in. It's a good idea, why haven't you done it? So people write down their ideas. They then collect all these things now from hundreds of middle managers. They got all these good ideas that have never been acted upon. So they start to look through the reasons why, and they end up sorting them into four categories. If you can envision, uh, uh, I didn't put this in the handouts, but if you can envision a two by two, four quadrants, right? The two dimensions, these are the reasons why people did not take action on what they knew to be a good idea. One of the dimensions was is, is, is the obstacle or the thing that presented to you, is it real or is it just in your head, like the northern pike? Is it real or is it just imaginary, this obstacle? And the other dimension, is it negotiable or not? Is it changeable or is it fixed? So you got it, you got four categories here. Every excuse or explanation for not enacting a good idea could be classified as either real or imagined and fixed or changeable. You can, I bet you can think where this is going. 95% of the obstacles were either imaginary or they were real but negotiable fixable or changeable. Only 5% were in that quadrant that makes it literally not possible. All right? What I'm getting at, again, is the psychological stuff that gets in the way from actually taking this action that would make me a better leader or, or whatever you've been thinking about lately. Finally, Apollo 13. That's Tom Hanks playing Jim Lovell. 
I've, sometimes when I've done like two week, I mean, been a part of a faculty team that has done two week long executive programs, you got to insert variety when you're living with people for two weeks and classes all day and evening things, and you got to do a lot of different things. And what I've occasionally done is show Apollo 13 from beginning to end the entire movie. It's kind of a change of pace, but also because it's got so many lessons in it. And of course, it's a true story, right? But there's all kinds of leadership stuff, decision-making, problem-solving, communication. There's all kinds of management-related stuff. And I asked the class to you know, look for the lessons. What are the great you know, moments? You can maybe think back to Apollo 13 and some of the great moments. And I bet one thing that comes to mind, by the way, might be Ed Harris saying failure is not an option, right? That's by, that, by the way, is the Walenda factor. There's no way. Do you remember the odds that just kept piling up against those guys? But the guy on the ground is saying, we're not going to lose this, right? That's the Walenda factor. I think a great example. But anyway, people love to talk about the movie, the examples, and this illustrates that and, and the other thing. But what they often don't mention is my favorite example from that movie. Do, do, do you remember? This is about the moonwalk, of course, uh, the, the moon you know, program, of course. The beginning of the movie, Tom Hanks, Jim Lovell, has all the astronauts and their families over at their, the Lovell house, and they're watching TV when Neil Armstrong walks on the moon. And uh, you know, it's all very cool. And uh, we're all kind of caught, and Walter Cronkite is shedding a tear, and we're all, we're all caught up in the moment. Anyway, the party ends, and everybody goes home except for Jim and Marilyn Lovell. And the two of them go out on the patio or the back deck. And, and uh, the party's over, and it's just quiet. It's a beautiful uh, Houston night, <laughs> if that's possible. Uh, and there's a full moon up in the sky, and the camera's on the full moon. And, uh, and it's supposed to be romantic. And actually, Marilyn appears to be feeling kind of romantic. And the camera's on the moon, and we're supposed to be thinking, not only it's romantic, but we're supposed to be thinking, isn't it a miracle? Tonight, a guy we know walked on the moon. And I love the line, at this romantic moment, where we're supposed to be thinking about the miracle. Jim Lovell, Tom Hanks, says to his wife, you know, Marilyn, it's not a miracle. We just decided to go. We just decided we're going to go. You know, JFK, nine years prior, said we're going. So for all the history, for millennia, people had imagined flying like birds or walking on the moon. Finally, one guy, one president, just said, we're going to do it. And we did it. It wasn't easy. But here's the point. How often do we think, wouldn't it be nice if my people understood their donut? Wouldn't it be, be nice if uh, they understood the vision? Uh, some, someday somebody ought to do this. Maybe someday I'll do this. The good idea, the link from thinking about something to actually doing it is the decision to do it. As opposed to, what a good idea, wouldn't it be nice? It's the decision, I am going to do this, like JFK saying, we're going to go. Jim Lovell saying, we just decided to go. So those are my thoughts about competence and charisma and leadership as how you solve problems and enlisting the brains of everybody else to help you think and do with competence. So, thank you very much, and let's talk questions, comments about anything. Thanks.